Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to Training with Casey, and I'm your host, Casey Covert, and I am so excited today to have my friend and colleague, Daniel Shaw, here to talk with us and Daniel is an animal behaviorist with an interest in neuroscience, neuroanatomy, psychology, and the practical applications of those to make life for our dogs and cats and other animals better. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. And Uh, We're on opposite time zones, so thank you for (laughs) accommodating us. And uh, we talked a little bit before because there's so much richness to explore in the things that you're studying and applying for your work in animal behaviorism. But one of the things you talked about that I really thought was interesting is the physiology of the startle and i had an a story i shared with you do you want to start with that or do you want to start yeah let's start i think it was a really fun story so (laughs) (laughs) or impressive story on your part (laughs) so uh sometimes people think that animals are all like really nice and you know they're like the victims (laughs) and so on but when you work with the animals like in zoos um there were the adversaries and a lot of times in a really great way, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of joking and so on. But in this one story I was sharing, I had to close the lion house at the national zoo and it had underground holding areas. There's a big hill and inside that hill where the outdoor exhibits are, Underneath those outdoor exhibits is an underground area where these lions and tigers stay. And there's a big corridor that goes around them. And at night, you have to check everybody and make sure they're all where they're supposed to be. Check all the doors. And, um, you know, and that's called closing the lion house. Now, it's a little bit tense because... Since the passageways are curved to go around this mountain, so to speak, um, you can't see all the way down the line. And occasionally they have little concave mirrors so that you can, or convex, I forget which, but anyway, so that you can see if there's an animal out. You know, so you didn't just turn the corner and go, hi, imagine meeting you here. And so I was closing the lion house And of course, apprehensive, watching to make sure that there are no lions out. And as I passed this one Atlas Lion King, as I get, he's, I just passed him. So he's out of my peripheral vision. He jumps up against the fence, the, the grate that separates us and scares the heck out of me. And I was good. I didn't lose it like I would now now if a bug flies in front of me but anyway I just kind of exploded against the concrete wall and I really hit my shoulder and 
the next day I was going to have to do that again. And now the lion knows he got me once. And so I thought, all right, what will I do? And I got a little mirror that you put on your glasses when you're riding a bike. And I'm just telling myself as I pass this Atlas lion, you will not startle. You will not startle. You will not startle. I did not startle. I did not startle. And I'm looking at him through this mirror and the lion's like checking his breath, looking at his claws, like, where did I go wrong? She didn't hit the wall. And he didn't try that with me any, anymore. I like to think that he was like humbled by the fact that I didn't get startled and that saved me for the rest of the time. I would love to hear uh, more to understand more about startles and reflexes because the limbic reflex, for example, where you pull your hand away from a hot stove and uh, that doesn't even go to your brain. It just goes to your spine. And yet you can thrust your hand into a fire to grab something knowing that you're going to get burned and you can decide to do that. So uh, we've got another story about getting burned, but I want to hand it over to you to take us wherever you think we can go with this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I think one thing that often we don't separate maybe as humans, but also with the animals we work with is that difference between startling and feeling or experiencing fear. And although they can often co-occur, so in that case of the lion, you probably were quite scared the first time. You're like, oh, crap, I'm about to be eaten. Um, it's not necessarily okay. <laughs> it's not necessarily going to co-occur. And, and, and there's slightly different processes that are at play there. And um, to give you an example, um, I've actually got a cat myself and not a lion, uh, <laughs> but a small little cat. And she um, um, was raised with um, or had quite quite a tough start to life. And we adopted her from rescue. And um, her name's Lola. And um, Lola's got an incredibly high startle reflex. So if someone moves in the wrong way, if someone makes a noise that spooks her, or if someone particularly, and this is the really key one, if someone tries to touch her without her being warned about it or expecting it, she physically jumps up about three meters or three feet, <laughs> uh, four feet maybe, um, and um, physically has that that really really big startle response. So there are a few yeah, things that we four can. Four feet. She may actually be a lion. So watch <laughs> out how she grows. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Although that said, she is tiny. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, it's, there's a few things there that I think are really interesting that we can think about. So firstly, what is the physiology of that startle reflex itself? Okay. And then secondly, what can we do in terms of helping our animals prevent that startle reflex? So in the case of, in the case of, um, you and the lion that might have been a, that is kind of a situational thing that you can manage potentially of, of kind of knowing that you're going into there and it makes it a little bit easier being that you're a human and you can say to yourself yeah this isn't something to worry about we don't yeah, have that that's advantage a good point. that's a yeah good point. 
so it, it's tougher with animals, right? Because we can't say that to them. We can't say, actually, this is going to be fine when this the, the fireworks are going to come on tonight and it's going to be fine or, or whatever startling things going to happen, you know, thunderstorms, all those sorts of things that can cause that startle response. Um, so the other thing that I've had a real interest is, in is what we can do to um, prevent that startle response in the animals or, or at least attenuate it a little bit so make it a little bit less severe and also if an animal has startled helping them recover from that as quickly as possible so giving them the skills to be able to kind of bounce back from a startle so um yeah if we start off with the 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 neurobiology of the startle and um, there's a few quite interesting things here so there's a particular nucleus um, in the brain, which has got a, a real mouthful of a name, but it's called the pontine reticular nucleus, and it, um, it tends to be Wait, shortened. Pontine? How do you spell pontine? Um, P-O-N-T-I-N-E. Okay, reticulus. And and then, yeah, reticular, um, R-E-T-I-C-U-L-A-R. And then nucleus? And then nucleus, yeah. Okay. Um, I tend to shorten it to the PNC, and that's what most people shorten it to because it's much easier to remember. Um, but it's a really interesting, um, interesting region of the brain because activation of the PNC causes that startle reflex. So it, mm. it causes that physiological response of where the animal kind of goes like that. And you can kind of see them pull their head forward a little bit, almost bracing their head often. Um, if, if we're talking mm. about non-human animals, often lowering themselves or, or after, after jumping up in some cases. So it, it kind of activates a load of pathways that that, that actually set off that whole um, motor response of the startle reflex, the blink as well, that kind of immediate blink that often comes with it. And there's a couple of really interesting things about how the PNC is activated. Um, so the first thing is there's, there's three types of stimuli that are really key to activating the PNC. There's okay. tactile um, stimuli, so things that things that an animal is touching. So if you think of, again, my cat Lola, right? It's <laughs> someone trying to touch her um, or someone touching her unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, acoustic stimuli. So mm. that's sounds, right? So your fireworks, your thunderstorms, you're suddenly, you know, you've stacked your cupboard badly and something just falls out, which always happens to me because <laughs> my organizational skills are terrible. Um, <laughs> um, and also the final one is vestibular stimuli. And by that, that's the vestibular really? system, right? And um, so that's, you've, you might have heard of it. It's kind of to do with maintaining your balance, so um yeah, a I'm really good example by that. yeah go ahead yeah. you know um have you ever had that experience a lot of humans have it we don't know if animals have it but i would say from observing them that some do um but that's just a guess that's not evidence-based yeah, yeah. um is that um when you feel like you're falling in the night and you suddenly wake up and you kind of go like that yes um, yeah that's kind of what it feels like having a balanced startle um and um, it can happen, obviously, in real life as well. If you're, you know, unfortunate to be in an earthquake or an earth tremor or something like that, then that would be a key time when that would come off. Or if you step onto something that's just not very good footing and you lose your balance, then you can get oh, a start to reflex right. from that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now I could I can really see that because I never had problems like that personally until recently. So. Mm -hmm. There's crystals, and I guess as you get older, it's more likely to be a problem. 
And if they don't flow where they're supposed to flow, all of a sudden, when you change your position, you get really dizzy, like nauseously dizzy. And it'll just pass after a minute, hopefully before you call 911 for emergency ambulance. And it's really weird. Now I'm kind of getting used to it, but it's different than like if you ever get lightheaded and you feel like you might faint. It's not that at all. So that was the only experience I've really had with that problem. Oh, except I I couldn't do those rolly holy rides, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm the no, I can't do those I'm... either. <laughs> I just I've just moved to a seaside town and there's loads of them around um <laughs> thinking no I'm not going on those um, <laughs> and all the people that visit you will want you to go with them to those so you go have fun on them uh, <laughs> I'll sit here um, on yeah. the stable ground but yeah it's interesting and 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 people that experience balance issues that can have a really big impact on your mental health right and it's yeah. because it balance more the vestibular stimuli more than anything that the pnc is really sensitive to your startle reflex is more sensitive to um sort of balance or issues than it is even to the to the touch or um the auditory stimuli so the balance thing is really interesting to think about and i think if you hear about people with with issues with their balance that often does affect their mental health and um, well you you know let's say you were going over a bridge you would be at risk um, walking on a wall. You know, there's just so many, riding a bicycle. There's so many places where if you can't trust your perception of position because you've got, you know, some kind of a change. And it could be, I, I was bringing up one that was a problem with your own physiology. But um, having grown up in California, Yes, if the whole earth starts to move around under your feet, it definitely is startling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can bet. And the other thing that's known with the with the startle stimulus, the startle reflex, is the more it's activated, if it is activated lots excessively, is it is it's not good for your mental health. That's a surefire way to 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 um cause an uh, uh, harm or hurt or decrease um, an animal's welfare is by startling them repeatedly. Okay, so repeat that again. It's a great way to start. A what kind of decrease? Um, just to 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 lead to a decrease in welfare for the animal oh, oh, if, oh, we, oh, if oh. we can continually startling them. So it's definitely something to think about, and I think particularly with with um, animals like dogs and cats working on activities such as proprioception activities, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is activities that help the animal be aware of their body in the moment and be able to kind of move between surfaces and move up and move down and maybe move onto a surface and then off a surface. Like a cat safely climbing a tree and being able to assess the stimulus from the tree to make sure, you know, that they're on the right branch and not on too small a branch, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And cats are brilliant because they do it themselves uh, to a certain extent, whereas dogs I would say more often they don't have those environmental opportunities. So setting up kind of like um, 
activities for them where they can practice going up a ramp maybe or up a ramp onto the surface then walking along something and then stepping down is really really valuable for them because it's gonna it's gonna help that sense of balance develop and prevent that starter reflex from being activated you're you're triggering something many years ago I helped some world-class agility competitors that were going on, you know what the dog walk is? It's just kind of like a gang plank and it's up high. Okay. And as I watched the problem, the dogs are going up on it and they were getting thrown off of it. And so what it seemed to be to be is if the dog approached the ramp going up to this dog walk at an angle, when they hit the top, they set off like a wave that was like at an angle also. And then as they went along the dog walk, they just got flipped right off of it. So we went and taught the dogs to approach so that they were absolutely lined up with the ramp, not coming in like this, but coming in straight behind it. Zero problems. We corrected it in no time at all. But this was a situation where the dog did not know how to interpret the information it was getting from its proprioception to solve its own problem. Like I suspect a cat would never even have that problem. Yeah. So it was an easy fix, but it wasn't an easy fix for the dogs on their own interpreting that type of stimulus. So I think it's very relevant what you said about, you know, the cats going out and practicing these things and maybe even just naturally being better at that particular kind of thing. Yeah, they've got the the, the genetic advantage, right? But yeah. yeah, dogs, of course, are dealing with the human world on a day-to-day basis, and they're dealing with us kind of having to get in and out of weird stuff and go into weird human places that they're not expecting to have to deal with. So if we can yeah. offer them some support like that, like you did with those clients that you're working with, I think that's really, really valuable. And obviously that wasn't an agility setting, but... Um, you know, it doesn't even have to just be an agility setting, you know, thinking about things like practicing going up a ramp into the car is really, really valuable for some dogs, because that can be a bit yeah. scary for some dogs. Oh, so. You know what, you're absolutely right. And as a trainer, um, mm, when you're a dog trainer, 95% of your job is to fix problems. When you're an exotic animal trainer and manager, your job is the total well-being of the animal. So you start from cradle, you end at the grave, and you're responsible for preparing that animal for all the husbandry, all the vet behaviors, all the environmental adjustments, everything. And so what we get to see is that if you teach you know, a dog about going up a ramp when he's a youngster, before he's in agility or anything like that, he will not only use it later when he gets into agility, but he will generalize. I don't even want to say that's not even the right term, not generalize, but apply in new situations that he wasn't taught to use that in. And it's so much to the extent that I always wonder why people say that dogs are not good at generalizing. I don't know about generalizing, but they sure are good at extrapolating from one event to another 
from past learning. Anyway, so fascinating. Sorry to take us on a side. No, no, and it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. And it, it is, yeah, the kind of the generalization thing. It's uh, a whole, a whole, yeah, fascinating topic in terms of what causes a dog to generalize on something and what doesn't. And I think, um, yeah, there's a lot that that's not known about that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, one thing that we do know that they generalize well as well is fear. That's the one thing that they yeah. do seem to be very quick at if they learn you know, one one human wearing glasses is scary. Then they learn that they're all scary quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it's yeah, it's an in, it's an interesting topic for sure. So now with this startle response, um, we know these three things initiated in the PNC, and you guys are on your own for remembering the words. That hold on, I got to go back. It's the pontine reticular nucleus. What's the C? That's a really good question. I think it's the C for the reticular, um, because um, I I don't know. There must have been there must have been a um, a PNR already that refers to something else. So yeah, yeah, and maybe the <laughs> yeah, you didn't know there'd be a quiz on your own material. <laughs> okay, so the PNC and. It can be initiated by tactile, acoustic, or vestibular. And vestibular is inner ear, right? Yeah, yeah. And do we know what happens? Like, um, if somebody touches your arm a certain way, you might or might not be startled. Like, do you know what's required for it to be a startle? Yes, there's a few things. That's a really interesting question. Um, one thing that's really unique about the PNC is it. So most neurons in the brain to send an electrical signal. So what's in the posh way called an action potential in kind of the the neuro language, but just essentially just an electrical signal to the next neuron. Right. So if you've got one neuron that's sending a signal to the next neuron, for that neuron to send a signal a neuron has to send it a signal, right? It has to receive a signal from another neuron. So you kind of get a chain that occurs of one neuron sends a signal that activates the next neuron that activates the next neuron. Um, So a giant game of telephone. Yeah, exactly. A little bit like that, right? Why did you go to school for all this, Daniel? (laughs) And um, so so normally what happens is that whether the signal gets activated is just dependent upon the um, amount of um, activation that you get at once from the previous neuron. So it's it's purely kind of based on the volume of um, okay. signal that comes from the previous neuron. Now, interesting with, interestingly, with the PNC, the amount of activation isn't as important. It's the speed that that activation develops. Ooh. So to put that in, again, more practical terms... If I started going kind of clapping really quietly and then building up and then getting louder and louder, then what would be happening is my acoustic um, uh, signals would be coming into the PNC, but it would start off with quite a low level signal directed Mm -hmm. to the PNC. And then that would build up as, as the volume from my clapping built up, the signal to my PNC would build up. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So if it builds up slowly like that, the PNC isn't necessarily going to activate. So the PNC um, 
only responds to high threshold stimuli if that happens very quickly. So if the buildup's slow, it doesn't respond. It's like, doesn't matter, I'm not interested. <laughs> but if it if it gets a really sudden onset, so if I started clapping really loudly, which I'm not going to do because I'm aware this is a podcast and people <laughs> probably <laughs> listening to it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but if I suddenly started clapping really loudly, then that would I could be clapping at the same volume as I was doing before if I built it up. But it's because it's that sudden onset that the PNC responds. So it's it's quite unique in that sense that it's really responding to sudden onset. So what we uh, can take things. away, yeah, uh, intensity and sudden onset, right? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, this is so so great for me to be able to learn this from you because we can turn around. Okay, remember you were mentioning about sound phobias and stuff. We can generally turn around an animal that has a phobia of fireworks or thunder in a single session. Okay, wow, brilliant. And have that last for the rest of his life. And um, and we've tested a lot. I even have a little video of my horses I just brought home. And yeah, one is 32 years old, but I've never been through fireworks with her. But she has gone through some of this other training. And in this training, we teach them to self-relax. And then we do cycles with things that are triggers. And we break the triggers down in little tiny pieces. And then, so you're showing, you're telling me why this is working so well. Yeah. We're introducing the trigger in this little piece and then back it off return the animal to baseline and then so you're going to work up to that intensity and you are actually being an ally to the animal in not startling not responding in an extreme and fearful way and now then the question that you've also saddled me with daniel thank you anyway is uh how does it keep how does it last for the next occasion you know like we build it up in that there's some learned aspect there can be some learned aspect like me with a lion I still really wanted to startle even though I didn't want to but I used my will and I was as you said able to prepare for it so a lot of times in real life, the startles just happen and you're at the mercy. So I was able to overcome it. But with these animals, they're able to overcome future occurrences with fireworks or thunder. And one of the really challenging things about helping animals to get past those problems is that we cannot control when or how those things happen. So, A, it's amazing that we can help them. And B, how do they continue to help themselves? 
Are you mm. going to answer that question? Yeah. Or are you gonna so, I mean, you? I think that's where where it comes into the, the learning aspect as well, as you say, right? Because we've got the startle reflex, which is going to contribute to that fear response. Mm-hmm. But the fear response is separate. So you're also, so you're working on reducing the startle. But even then, if fireworks happen again, right, and that's unexpected, that can cause a startle. It sounds like what you're doing is then you're starting to, um, you're getting the animal in a place where they're not feeling so fearful of those sounds anymore and that also links into the startle reflex because if you're scared of something you're more likely to startle so to give you a a dog example with that um if you shout yes at a dog (laughs) they're less likely to startle than if you shout no at a dog at the same volume and (laughs) and the reason for that is right because there's often for most for some dogs anyway I don't I don't do I don't scare my dog with no because I would teach her that it means something rather than use it as a um fear eliciting stimuli but with some dogs if no has been um associated previously with fear that will add to the startle when the animal hears it so it kind of compounds if you've got something that startles you and something that is in your mind is scary then that startle can become worse okay and then actually from on the other end come to think of it as well there's there's a very interesting effect um known as um or two interesting effects actually we can talk about um that again and you'll have to share a little bit more about your training sessions and how they work in a minute hopefully <laughs> because it might be that, that again this is this is applied in what you're doing but yeah um, there's something called pleasure attenuation okay and let's basically hear about what it. That, sorry say that again I said, okay, let's hear about okay. it. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so that essentially means that if you are if you are having a pleasant experience, you are less likely to startle than if you are having an unpleasant experience. So, um, ah. for example, if I'm enjoying my favorite chocolate bar or, or whatever, or <laughs> um, whatever it may be, um, I would be less likely to startle than if I'm having a really bad day and in a bad mood or, or for whatever reason right so pleasure attenuation so again if we think of an animal that we're working with that 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 you know is afraid of fireworks or has been afraid of fireworks or have a history of that and we've started off by um saying actually do you know what we're starting a training session now it's usually quite fun when you do this training session and we've got the dog in a state where they're like oh yeah cool i'm looking forward to this i'm going to add some food this is good this is fun then because they are in that kind of state of knowing good things are about to happen or because maybe you know they've got something nice or they're enjoying engaging with their um caregiver um then that may be reducing the startle reflex as well Mm. we don't use any food for this ah so you're not using any food so and and we don't use any uh for other training i do use the word no but it's uh pretty much just feedback like nope that won't be successful or even nope because they need to stop but there's no use of extrinsic reinforcers okay all right uh i wasn't going to try to take us there in the first one and we don't (laughs) have to talk about this today but we got to come back and talk about this we we identify the triggers And from that point on, the dog or the animal works for access to the trigger. That's our motivator. We don't use food and we don't use any extrinsic extrinsic punishment.
So, yeah, um, it sounds it sounds interesting. And um, yeah, tell tell me more about that. So, so you identify the trigger. So, if we talk, if we stick with fireworks <laughs> yeah, as an okay. example, okay, does that work for this? You're. Mm, it's a little bit different because I can't do the cycles the same way. Um, I'd be happy to tell you exactly what I do for fireworks because I have offered this training for free a lot of times and now we sell it as an online class. But I hear so many people like you guys have uh, Guy Fox Day, right? Yeah. Oh, my dog is, you know, upset, la, 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 la. And I'm like, just teach it just teach it you know you don't maybe or maybe they shouldn't get rid of fireworks but there's always something in the world it's way better for the animal to learn to be safe in that world without requiring the world to change so if i can take a different example first because it's more general so people will come and they'll say, I have a problem. My dog barks at the mailman. Why do you think your dog barks at the mailman? My dog barks at the mailman because the mailman comes onto his property and he's afraid of him and he wants him to go. Now that sounds reasonable, right? So we teach the dog the initial skills and now we're ready to do the cycles. And we tell the dog, if you want the mailman to go, just bark as they have been doing habitually for the last five years. But if you want the mailman to keep approaching, you must stay easy. And the dogs will turn themselves inside out to get easy in order to buy the approach of the mailman. Okay. So then, and because they're wanting to engage with the mailman in that situation, is that? I'm not a dog. (laughs) So I'm actually not an operant conditioning person. I had to master that for, you know, training dolphins and stuff, but I'm way more of a cognitive trainer now because I've seen the severe problems with operant conditioning and the limitations and stuff. So basically... Um, we just set it up and we let the, okay, you know who talks about this and we didn't develop it concurrently at all, but I was amazed to hear it. Vilma Shani says in his book, I can't remember the title of his book, the first one, but anyway, he says he doesn't understand why more scientists don't use the conditional statement because it's so powerful. I nearly fell off my chair. Because my experience with scientists is, you know, while we're showing that these animals are processing this language and, you know, getting meaningful information and so on, a scientist would be looking at going, yes, well, dogs are not capable of understanding this. Dogs have no sense of presence, past, or future. Dogs, la, 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 la. Well, now that they actually have ways to do MRIs and everything, they're all going, oh, guess what? They do, you know, but they couldn't process the evidence right in front of them that was brought to them by people like myself that are dealing with these animals in practical situations. So 
the if-then statement is a really efficient thing because you tell the animal what I need from you and what you're going to get as a result. And now you can start negotiating. So why can we do all the initial training without any food or anything? I'm not sure. I, I'm kind of hoping you're going to tell me. But if you don't, just keep studying and we'll keep talking, okay? <laughs> but um, we found that the food actually just introduces more arousal. And for the owners, it can be really problematic. And for the trainers, too, because they become conditioned. They become conditioned to throw food at the animal. The animal gets a little more aroused with food involved a lot of times. And really what they need the animal to do is to learn to choose a different emotional state. So to choose a different emotional state, they have to have a chance to consciously learn about that state. And um, we say that there's five milestones and you know, when a dog starts out, he sees another dog. Rah, 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 rah. He's probably not thinking in the morning. Hmm, I'm going to see another dog and that's going to irritate me and I'm going to bark my head off. And then at 12.05, I'll stop and I'll go. It's not planned. The animal is just acting out. But when we start to talk to them about what is happening and how they're acting out, it changes their state. It changes them from being the um, being in the emotion to observing the emotion. Have you seen Lisa Feldman Barrett's book on how we construct emotion? Yeah, I have read that. And she talks about the... Um, Dang it. I just lost my train of thought. Okay. I was just telling you about the um, oh, interception. Oh. Yeah. 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 That when an animal is stressed or when a person, cause she's dealing with people, right? She probably doesn't even realize they're animals, but anyway, when they are in stress or trauma, the most effective thing that we can do to help them through it is to simply name it. And why would that be? I think it's because of the reason I just said. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's sort of getting into <laughs> something else, which is kind of, um, yeah, I think very interesting, which is kind of that third wave um, CBT um, movement, because, yeah, so... Well, I don't know this. Go ahead and educate. Yeah, so cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy is quite well known. Most people have heard of it. It's essentially the second wave of cognitive therapies is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's where you're looking at both cognition and behavior um, and really looking at reframing thoughts. So, for example, in cognitive behavioral therapy, if you said to me, oh, I think spiders are scary, I would say, actually, why do you think that? Is there a reason for that belief? Can we reframe that belief and change the mm, way you think about okay. spiders? Third wave cognitive or third wave um, um, cognitive therapies don't look so much at the thought themselves. Uh, at, sorry, they don't look so much at the belief themselves, but they look at the way the mind processes thought. So what you're kind of touching on there 
reminds me really of things such as acceptance commitment therapy, like ACT or um, metacognitive therapy even, um, which is where, for example, if you said, oh, I'm scared of spiders, I'd say, okay. Um, again, I'm not a, I'm not a third wave psychotherapist, so I'm probably not doing this justice, but um, <laughs> I'll, you, I'll, I'll I have to find you to sue you, okay? <laughs> Might and say something like, okay, um, you've got that thought, let's just let that pass. Let's just sit with that thought. Let's just uh, see that thought coming in and actually think about how you process that thought. So not saying that we have to think spiders aren't scary anymore, but think about is worrying about whether spiders gonna sca- are scary going to help? Um, is worrying a successful strategy for dealing with that? Looking at things like um, can we can we do things to actually make those unpleasant thoughts seem a little bit less unpleasant? So can we do things such as... Um, one method is called sort of um, repeating something until it loses its meaning. It's got a name. I've forgotten the name of it. But for example, um, yeah, um, not quite desensitization. It's something a little bit different, but um, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately. Um, but it says, say, for example, someone that's very scared of spiders, you might get them to say spider, 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 spider. And mm-hmm. if you keep saying something, you find it eventually loses its meaning. So it's kind of, being able to equip someone to handle their, their the negative thoughts they have rather than just challenging the individual belief on the thoughts. And I think that's really interesting because if you're challenging individual beliefs, you're kind of playing like whack-a-mole, right? Because you could come in one week saying, I've got a fear of spiders this week. I'm really stressed about spiders. Next week, it's, oh, I'm really stressed about this. Third week, it's, I'm really stressed about this this week. But in the third wave of psychotherapies, it's generally looking at actually giving people tools to be able to handle feelings of anxiety, feelings of discomfort, because we all have feelings of discomfort. We all have feelings of anxiety. They're going to happen. But so we can't prevent them entirely. We can't just make them go away. We've got to give animals, humans skills to be able to deal with those as they as they are generated by our brain. Okay, so one, uh, I don't come at it from any kind of therapy perspective, right? Um, and I probably will now having talked to you, I'm going to blame you for it. <laughs> but what we saw is that Everybody in human work that has to deal with emergency situations has an emergency protocol. When I was a kid, uh, we had all these nuclear war drills and you had to go under your desk or into the hallway, kneel down, put your hands behind your head and sit there. Now, how the heck is that going to help you in a nuclear attack? But what it would do is keep you from trampling each other to death, which is often what happens when people panic. So uh, I've worked, you know, like working with exotics, you have to learn to keep your cool, even when things get really bad, because fear has the purpose of telling you, you need to notice something. And after that, it is a useless stress. So you have to learn to get past that. Uh, One of the sayings that I hear a lot in my field is, um, think first, panic later, there's always time to panic. So 
when you're thinking that directly competes with your ability to panic. That's the real reason for these emergency protocols in a lot of cases is it gets the people that need to be thinking and directing things in a position where they can continue to do that because they haven't yet surrendered to the emotions because once somebody surrenders to the emotions, they're out for a while. And that's, that's where we're coming from. So I'm going to, like when I initially start talking to the animals, we do teach them vocabulary and we test it. And uh, my horse knows over 500 words and concepts, but it also doesn't matter. And there's two reasons for that. They already know a lot just from living around us. So when I am at a stable and I'm working with a horse and we'll name all the body parts, prepare them for injections, um, name directions and locations like distal and proximal, whatever the vets are going to say to them and up, down, around, all those kinds of things. And we can literally teach about 10 or 15 of those things in a minute. And as we do them, other animals that are not involved in the training will stand around and watch. And we've got videos of it. They'll come up. Sometimes it's like somebody passed the popcorn. They're all standing there watching. As I leave the area, a lot of times horses will put their muzzle out and just like nuzzle my arm. And I look at them and they're, they're like, yeah, ask me. I know this. Ask me. It's like they want to be seen. They want a place at the table in the conversation. And they want you to know, I know these things already. And I'll just ask them to do, you know, can you do what? Show me right. Show me left. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Show me your eyes. Show me your ears. Because we put up these are neutral targets and they can just move the correct answer to the target, demonstrating that they get it. So if I say, can you show me your eyes? And the animal went like that, you go, okay, maybe a little more work to do there. Mm -hmm. But if you say, show me your eyes, they go like that. Show me your ear, they go like that. Then you say, you know, show me your left ear and I'm gonna show you what looks like my left ear to you. That's really my right ear, but it'll look like the left to you. Show me your right eye now you know they have those concepts, both left and right and eye versus ear. And so we can do that very quickly. And the animals already get that stuff. But also the stuff that we start with is always teaching the animals to cope with stress and managing their emotions because that's the number one cause of disease and death in zoos and so on. So when we start talking to the animal, it's gonna cause it to occupy, you know, whatever part it thinks. Well, we think in terms of the frontal lobe, but like with birds, they define the intelligence of birds because they assume that bird brains were function the same as ours. And then they said, oh, it's a bird brain. And then later on, they're like, <clears throat> sorry, Alex. You know, and they had to come up with, oh, they have denser nuclei, blah, 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 blah. 
But it's like, the fact is, is we don't know how all these animals know what they know. We can look and see, we can ask them, what do you know? When we ask them initially, when we start talking to them and explaining what we're doing, we realize they may not understand every word we're saying, but I don't care. Because for them to become successful in managing their stress, they need to get that thinking part of the brain occupied. And I don't care if the dog's sitting there going, what is she, an idiot? Doesn't she know I speak British English and not American English? You know, we, we it doesn't matter if they are just sitting there thinking that we're nuts. What matters is we get them engaged in thinking. And that is the lever that allows them to elevate themselves, separate themselves from um, being at the mercy of their emotions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's fascinating to hear about. And it, it, it yeah, just makes me think of so many things as well in terms of, I think one thing that sometimes gets lost, especially when we do think about just training with food is the kind of the social aspect of training. Mm. And, um, you know, whether we're thinking about dogs or horses, both are really social animals and actually cats are social animals to an yeah. extent, and maybe not Very so much, much. as. Um, Very as, much as like some, they, but... they get together at night yeah. if you let them, right? So, yeah, and city cats, we see them live in colonies all the time. So, yeah. you know, they're typically not thought of as such a social animal, but I think some cats are very social. Um, and um, I think having that social engagement opportunity is super valuable for the animal. And what you're doing there, and I think as well as providing this social outlet, which is again so valuable, and I think again with animals that are living in a human world that's just reducing some of that frustration of constantly not being able to speak our language isn't it because and we know that when we get speak. somewhere and we can't speak it's annoying yes yes even even when I go to England oh my gosh I I don't even know if I should say this because your people are in England in America there's a, <laughs> some of your people and others are the rest of the universe but um, we have these little leather bags that you can clip around your waist. And we call them something that, go figure, it's not rational, all my fellow friends that are Brits, but we call it something that is vulgar in your, yeah. So I'm in England and what's in this little device? My passport my money, my ID, da, 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 da. And I have to keep track of it all the time. And I'd taken it off for some purpose. And I go, uh-oh, where's my blank, blank? And the whole room goes, <gasps> and it's like, it's just a word. It's just a word. And we define that word differently. So the mix-ups that come with words, even where we theoretically speak the same language, can be really severe. But you know what else, Daniel? They can be just as severe with gestural language. So if you work with orangutans, they pretty much seem to welcome direct eye contact. Like we, 
look for when we're having a conversation. So if I was going to show an orangutan my clock, I might go, do you want to see that? What do you think? And look, I can do this with it. And, you know, it comes out like this. And maybe um, if it was safe, give it to the orangutan and let them try it. They might bring something to show me and they would look at me to make eye contact. Not a gorilla. A gorilla, if you look at it like this, they'll come right up. If you're looking at them through the glass, they'll hit the glass. If you're interfacing with them at a chain thing, they'll hit the chain in such a way like, you better think better of that. Like, don't you do that again. And yet, when I worked with gorillas, um, well, at a number of zoos in Australia, we did this. And we were teaching them those concepts and so on. And they learn them just as quickly as everybody else. And initially I had to be so careful about looking obliquely and, you know, kind of like, here's this thing. You probably won't be interested in it, but I'm going to do this. And they'd come and they'd be like this and they'd look at it and maybe go like this and then come back and look at it some more. And then as I showed them other things, they'd be like, really? And then I, and then I'd say, do you want to see it? Yeah. Yeah. So that we started building eye contact that wasn't natural. Now you would think I would have sat there and watched gorillas interacting to see if they did give eye contact to each other. But I just know in baboons and gorillas, both, if you get lost in the jungle and a gorilla comes to help you look to the side and say, thank you. Don't look at him directly in the face. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so is... then you, you see somebody that talks about like Turd Rugas wrote a book and she it talked about calming signals. Although later on, she was very frustrated that that got translated from either Norwegian or Swedish to mean that. And she was like, that's not exactly what I meant. They were communications and so on, and they might have a calming effect, but that wasn't, and anyway, and so if you think you understand how to speak dog, you have to know that like a yawn, there isn't one definition for a yawn. It might be a calming signal. It might be a stress. It might just be that it's time for bed. It might just be that you study meditation and any time anybody starts to talk about meditating, you start to yawn, which is what I do right there. Sorry. It, you know, it can just be conditioned. It can be so many different things. But further, what it's... The, the reason I yawn when I say meditation is because of conditioned associations in the past. If I didn't have those, a yawn wouldn't necessarily come every time I talked about meditation. And with dogs, you've got some dogs like little pugs that are, hi, how are you? You know, looking in your face, licking on your face. And if you thought you spoke dog and you go and try that with some of the mastiffs, you may not have a face. So I know that in speaking other languages, that I can make a little mistake that really causes a problem. 
that can be with words, but it can also be with gestures with animals. Do you want to hear about my one of my international incidents in Japan? Yeah, <laughs> sure. So I, I try to learn the language wherever I go. And my sister spoke Japanese. So she would drill me on this stuff and she gave me a phrase book. So if you're going to go out by yourself, you need to know how to ask for the restroom. Yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? It's <laughs> one of the core ones I start with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like food, good, restroom, critical. So I I practiced it, Nandesco Tore. And my sister, okay, good. So I'm out and about for quite a while and all of a sudden think that I should practice this phrase. So I go up to the shopkeeper and I say, Sumimasen, which means kind of like, excuse me, um, Nandesco Tware. And they go, so I repeat it again. Hmm. They call someone over again. It, it happens the same way. Finally, I get out the phrase book and I show them. They look at it and they, and they go, oh, and they take me to the restroom. Thank you very much. So eventually, my friend and colleague, Nawako Agato, who was the first vet behaviorist in Japan, and also the first person that got certified in my techniques in Japan, she was visiting, and I said, Nawaka, why did everybody, like, was it because I wasn't speaking the way that they speak? Because the guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah, and the women are like, oh, yeah, 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 when you get out in the country. And she goes, what? And so I said it again, and she looked the same way as the shopkeepers. And finally, she goes, Casey, are you meaning to say what? what is a toilet? <laughs> <laughs> what should I have said, Nawako? Doka deska tware. Nan deska is what is. It just got confused in the phrase book. Mm. Doka deska. There you go. That's the most critical thing for you to know in Japan. Now you can book your trip, Daniel. Yes, Don't exactly. make my mistake. <laughs> Don't make that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough. It's, it, is, it is tough to, to try and adapt the language of other humans. It's tough for us to, to get our heads around different, you know, syntactic rules and all those things as we try and learn other languages. Or, yeah, if you're in Japan as well, like you're dealing with a completely different um, text system, you've sort of got a graphological um, way of writing. And we know that is tough as humans. So then kind of doing that human to animal communication. Yeah. It's kind of, I think that's a good reminder of how it, it, it is something that takes work and it does take dedication and yeah. practice. And it, and it, and like you say, with the, with your example, with the gorillas, right. It, it, even within a species, it will depend because you've got those gorillas now that are actually quite potentially comfortable with eye contact in, yeah. a, in a scenario but majority of gorillas won't so even if you're the gorilla expert of the world right. you're still going to have to adapt to the individual group that you're dealing with and the way they communicate because you know i mean obviously like i you know in in the us or me in the uk depending on you can have people that live across the street from you that have a very different way of communicating um, yes and and you guys are a great example of that in that um, 
as England was evolving, people couldn't travel around it so easily as they do now. So there's a lot of localized accents. And in America, we have the same thing, um, but it tends to be bigger areas. So you can travel further and not get out of your local dialect, so to speak. But it's also amazing how we're adapted for it because I went all over England, but I was never any place except for, I spent a lot of time working with people at Woodgreen. So I kind of got used to that particular accent. But I heard on the trains, Geordies and all these guys, and these guys came up and they figured out I was American. How could they? I don't know. And um, they start talking to me and I realized they were trying to confuse me because they don't talk right. And I go, are you guys Geordies? And they go, yeah, how did you know? And frankly, I have no idea how I knew. Like subconsciously, we process this stuff and we sort people like, okay, they're probably from here. They're probably from here. That guy's probably from the East End of London. How do we know this? And I guess we're just adapted for it that, you know, we pick it up quickly. And right now you probably have a concept of how a U.S. Southerner speaks, because that's in a lot of comedies <laughs> throughout the world. But living in the South, there are many, many different Southern accents. And so when you listen, it's like, oh, that person's from Baltimore. In Baltimore, they go, Baltimore. I, I, I went out with the hogs and the dogs, you know, just like there's little tiny things that that tell you this person is not from here. They're from someplace else. And I don't know how we discern all that. Like I'm all into consciously knowing things and be able to say, okay, somebody, somebody from Boston says, park my car. But I, I don't know that for all these accents. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually it's, the one thing I do know about it is it's uh, some some of it comes from your critical periods of development as well. So, for example, um, kind of um, the I think could be could I could be mistaken on this, but it's a, still an example that gives you an idea. I think the French can't hear the difference between a certain sound that we make in England and then we can't hear a difference between a certain sound that French make um the French make with their with their um letters I think there's something to do with the letter R um I know in the US there's certain sounds that you can hear meant to be here I'm able to hear if you're from up north but not if you're from down south <laughs> and um it's it's really key in terms of um the that first year of life if you're exposed to that sound then you can be able to hear the difference between say two sounds but for me as someone that hasn't been exposed to that sound i will never be able to hear the difference however much i practice between these two sounds that a, a northern american yeah. could hear the difference between um so yeah. it is critical development and again if you think back to dogs we have have definitely not had that critical development period in terms of our dog communication so we're never yeah. going to be as adept as them and i think coming into that uh, like you do as you say with your training with with a bit of an awareness that we are a little bit handicapped in our ability to communicate with them it's not going to be a perfectly fluent um conversation but as long as we've kind of got 
some um, intention to have that conversation and, and, and know that, yeah, they could just look at us like, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. Yeah. And just kind of being, being, being aware of that and being prepared for that and adapting to them a little bit. Um, I think, yeah, it makes, makes a big difference. Yeah. The, um, the, the thing that we do now is we are just resigning ourselves to the fact that we have to make a, another language. So we have our, you know, human, whatever our human language is, and they have their dog language. And now we're going to create a communication system together because we both need to agree on the terms. And I think that's one of the things that's very exciting. When, when I was saying about the horses coming out and going, hey, talk to me. Um, they know this stuff and people don't tend to ask them what they know. And so they're kind of invisible. They don't get credit for it. And I know with horses, this appears to be a really big thing. Like my mare is 32 and this is like ancient, according to like my vet goes, how many years do you want to hold on to this horse for? Well, I found out that there was a horse that lived to be 61. So I go to my horse, Sarah, and I said, Sarah, we just have to make sure the next 30 is as good as the first. I'm committed. Let's go. But if you're not if you're not seen as an intelligent being, if you don't have a place at the table when it comes to what is done with your body and what is what decisions are made about you, like one of the things with the horses is that the owners will move from one stable to another for whatever reasons, and maybe it's absolutely necessary, but the horses have very firm friendships. And when you take those friendships apart there's a lot of fallout you know uh, my horse when her best friend left I had told her about it that it was happening I took her to see the stall she turned away she would not look at it she immediately like within days developed acute arthritis where she could hardly stand or move and she developed colic. So they found her on the ground in the morning. And fortunately, they were able to get her up again and so on and so forth. But it was so dangerous to her well-being that when her next friend, her next, she got another best friend to replace. And that one was scheduled to go also because they sold the stable. I'm like, we got to go home. You know, because I can't control her best friend coming and going as long as everybody else owns them. It's, it's really, really a bigger deal than I think we, you know, and people that own dogs and everything, they know that because another dog will die. One of the dogs in the family will die. And maybe the dog doesn't look like anything, but you see health problems or you see them showing um, grief. And I remember that one of the orcas, um, Orky and Corky, they were from Marine Land of the Pacific. And when Corky died, Orky just went to the bottom of the pool and laid there. 
but they measured her oxygen consumption and she was using more oxygen than an orca in peak exercise. So she didn't look like she was upset, but she had zero behavior, zero interaction and really high metabolism of oxygen. So anyway. It's interesting. And I mean, and one thing um, I think that, that on that, that doesn't get appreciated so much is, is really this idea of social pain and yeah. the fact that social yeah. pain is so, so similar to physical pain in the brain. And if we think about pain, all the really? language, yeah, okay. the language used around pain, it's like crushed, I've been shattered, I've been heartbroken, right? It's also yeah. physical. Um, and yeah, in, so yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, so okay. when we have experience- I gotta say, I don't very often <laughs> have guests where I have to take notes, but go ahead. Um, when we experience physical pain, there's a few components of that pain that uh, get processed at different regions in the brain. So, for example, if I cut my hand, um, then that would send a message up my body into my brain through, through my spinal cord into my brain. And it would go to a couple of regions. So it would go to my um, sensory cortex. And that's just the region that tells me where that pain is. So that's all it's doing. It's saying I've got physical pain and it is here in my hand like so so if i just had that i could tell you the pain was in my hand and then there's also messages that get sent to um regions of the limbic system in the brain specifically a region called the anterior cingulate cortex mm -hmm. and that can be shortened to the acc um which actually is a a, a, a correct initialism not a <laughs> unlike the pmc um but um that is the bit that's in charge of processing the emotional aspect of that pain. So that's the bit that when I cut my hand makes it distressing, makes me say, oh, gosh, I want to deal with this. I want to go and clean this up and put a plaster on it because it's not it feels really it really hurts. that I've just cut my hand. So that's the element of that pain, the, 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 the region of the brain that makes that element of pain distressing. Now, if, if, if people have damaged their anterior cingulate cortex, for instance, they will be able to experience pain, tell you where the pain is, but they're not distressed by it. They're not bothered about mm -hmm. being in pain. So there's a few examples of this. There's a woman that um, had this, and I've, in the case studies, I think there's one um, example of when she had her hand on the stove and someone said, you've got your hand on the stove, and she's like, yeah, I can feel it. It's just not... I'm not worried about it. I should take it off probably, shouldn't I? And it kind of really goes to show that, that the emotional aspect of pain is really important, right? Because it adds that mm -hmm. urgency to deal with the pain. We know, we don't need to just know where it is. We need to feel it. Um, we need to feel the physical, emotional um, experience. Okay. So do we know for sure that that's separate from the intensity of the injury? Like what allows you to assess how serious the injury is? Yeah. So again, that is is not something we do well a lot of the time because the uh, assessment of the severity of the injury depends on how much your attention, how much or, or how much it hurts. Basically, is not a good assessment of the severity of the injury because how much it hurts just tells us how much attention we're paying to it, how much how bad we think it is. Um, what? It's, it's yeah, Daniel when if we see an injury coming because i'm a person that's been injured a bit and if you see it coming it's like either the dopamine or the adrenaline or both or you 
you don't feel it. It's like an anesthesia. And so I got bitten. I don't know if you can see it, but that's oh, one yeah. tooth and that's the other tooth. And um, I lost like a lot. I can't feel a pin there even now. This is a few years ago now. But I came in and I'm trying to stop it from bleeding. And I said to the other trainer, somebody else needs to take another animal out there and finish the show. And they're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like I was a hero right in their eyes for two seconds because I wasn't succumbing to pain. There was no pain. But then you cut your finger on a piece of paper. It hurts like heck. And you go and they're like, you wimp, get over it. Yeah, so there's a huge difference, and you're right. It's not commensurate with the uh, damage. Yeah, and it depends. So it depends where your attention is. So if, say, your attention in that situation was more on actually making the show a success and working on and getting everything to go and getting someone else out there for the dog, then what that does, if you direct your attention away from the source of the pain, that causes opioid release um, that actively decreases the experience of that pain right opioid in in mm. endogenous opioids opioids that are in our body so opioids are being the drugs also that we use to treat very severe pain we've got we've got opioids similar substances in our body called endogenous opioids and we can we just release those by directing our attention away from the pain so attention is a big aspect of pain i know i went kayaking a few weeks ago when i was on holiday and i cut my hand really badly and i didn't notice the whole time because i was so focused on on just trying to finish the finish the circuit um and then i got off and i was like oh that's awful um you didn't so, you never noticed the sharks coming yeah. after you huh yeah, exactly. And um it, it so so that's kind of physical pain and 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 yeah. the attention is is a big aspect and um um what you're expecting is a big aspect as well. So if yeah. you're expecting to have a good experience, if I'm say you know, like kayaking, for instance, I'm expecting to have fun, expecting to just be a nice experience, because I've got those expectations it's it's less likely to be painful than if I went into kayaking thinking I'm gonna injure myself I'm gonna this is gonna be awful if my expectations are really bad then the pain can be worse and this actually comes back to um like we were chatting about with your horses that you're working on preparing them for for vet treatments if they're expecting to have a conversation with someone they enjoy and do this and get and, and ask to you know put their put their head here, touch their ears, tap this. And they, they think, ah, oh, it's great. I love t- chatting to, or I love engaging with whoever they're working with at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're going in that positive mindset, their attention is focused on something other than the source of the pain because they're focusing on engaging in that sort of um, activity. Um, then it is likely that not only does it add that predictability and, and, and kind of make it seem more emotionally manageable, it's likely that it also reduces the experience of pain for them because if they are having an injection or a jab or, you know, something that's a bit unpleasant. There, There's another aspect of it too, as you're talking about, I'm realizing. So the farrier that we work with and the dentist we work with both will do a little bit of work pull off and ask the horse or the dog, check that out. And so the first time my horse got her teeth floated, the dentist came in, did that, pulled out 
And then he started to explain to me what he was doing. And I was watching her and she's like, oh, hmm. And then after about 30 seconds, she's like nuzzling him. Like, can, can you finish that please? Like by giving her a chance to examine what was happening, she realized this is going to make her life better. And now she is a collaborator with him. And she's kind of like, quit talking to her. She'll talk forever. Come back and finish this. Same thing with the farrier. He'll do some work and then he'll let them stand on their hooks. And he'll say, how is that? You know, is that better? This is so important because it develops the animal's judgment and self-assessment. Because like you're saying, if they're just going along, they'll just adapt to walking on the wrong yeah, their feet can be, be not trimmed or badly trimmed or whatever, and they'll still make it. But when they learn that there's a better way, they'll even do things like, hello, don't you think it's time to get this done? You know, they it really changes mm. the interaction. And another thing is the anticipation. If we say to the animals, okay, we need to do from this to this, and then we'll come in and do such and such. So with the horses or the dogs, either one, sometimes I forget the treats. And I'll just say, I need to do this work. And then we'll go graze, or we'll go play the ball, or we'll go have treats. Um, is that okay? And in my case, they'll literally say yes, or uh if they'd say no, then I'm reduced to negotiating and wheedling, which I have been known to do. But they'll generally just say yes. And now they're not, they, they just totally skip that thing of, hello, don't you think I deserve some food for my work? Hello, there are guilds and, you know, unions. And it's like, they get it. They agreed. If I didn't come through with my part of the agreement, I'm sure they wouldn't agree the next time. But having that anticipation of uh, if you get injured, then we're going to take care of it. But you got to get from here to there. Like one time somebody threw something in with the otters at the National Zoo. And I used to work with the otters, but I hadn't worked with them for a year. And it's something that had to come out because it could be dangerous to them. And. I thought I could save some time by going over the fence, dropping in there, and then just vaulting back out. So I did that. And on the way out, I was vaulting back out according to plan. And little Emily took offense at my being in her area. And I saw her coming and I knew she might bite me, but she wasn't likely to strip my leg off or anything like that. And so I just was going to vault and she bit me on the ankle. And I wasn't worried about it, but it there was a physiological response. I couldn't move. I'm just sitting there halfway and the people standing around go, are you okay? And I'm like frozen. And they kind of help grab my arms and, you know, pull me the rest of the way out. So there was a physiological response in addition to the pain. The pain, I didn't even bother but I didn't have control over this other aspect of the experience, which I'd love to learn more about, but just knowing that there was likely to be pain and I signed on for it. And that's like that cat that we were talking about 
where um, there was a fire and her kittens were in a warehouse in the fire. And she decided to go back and get her kittens out. And she suffered third degree burns and was severely injured, but she got all three kittens out. And then some humans had the audacity to say that she didn't understand about life and death. And it's like, really? Then why did she bother to get burned in order to go get her kittens? Why wouldn't she just say, I'll see you after the fire if she didn't realize that they were in danger? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that um, she was able to do that. I mean, that's just an, an incredible story, isn't it? Um, and um, yeah, cats are amazing moms. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, they yeah. are amazing moms and they are uh, courageous beyond all reason. Yeah. Um, in terms of pain, I, I can't comment in terms of what makes something more or less painful in, term, or in terms of this not experiencing that pain when you're expecting it, because personally i have the complete opposite experience that if i know i'm about to have an injection i'm like oh it's gonna really hurt and then i'm like ow um so <laughs> um so i i have the complete other other um experience to that so um it, I, I imagine it's something that you know depends uh, on the individual as well but um yeah um oh so the other thing we were going to talk about is social pain sorry i got yeah yeah off, yeah off well i'm helping to... you get distracted but keep going this is great yeah so the 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 final thing then on that really on the whole pain um issue is is social pain is is very very similar to physical pain and um i mentioned the anterior cingulate cortex earlier so that's that region that's part of that um, emotional system in the brain and it's now been found that when an individual experiences physical pain, their anterior cingulate cortex lights up and that, that contributes to the emotional aspect of that physical pain. But the same region, that same anterior cingulate cortex lights up. There's the same pattern of um, uh, brain activity when an animal is experiencing social pain. So for oh. example, if someone experienced social rejection, if someone experiences loss, um, the first actual study on this came from an MRI based study um, by, um, I'm not sure if he was the lead author, but M Matthew Lieberman is really key in all of this. So I can't remember who the lead author is, but the Lieberman lab is quite key in all of this. L-I-E-B? Um, yes, that's right, I think. I think it might be the other way around. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the book um, Social, which is a really good read on all of this. Um, but basically they did this study where um, someone was in an MRI, so we, an fMRI, which is basically a, a functional magnetic resonance imaging, where you can see um, which parts of the brain are requiring, requiring the most um, blood. Um, so kind of where your blood is going in your brain, because if you've got more blood um, going to a particular brain region, then that indicates it's doing harder work. Yeah. Um, so... The fMRI <laughs> and basically Sorry. that's always good. It's always good to have at least one dog barking for a podcast. Um, <laughs> it's not a good animal podcast if not. Um, <laughs> they might think um, we don't really actually live with animals. One second, Dan. Hey, good boy. That's a great song. Good boy. Talk to you soon. Go ahead. Um, so yeah, so what they did in this study is um, they essentially watched the anterior cingulate cortex through this fMRI and they got these 
people to engage in a game called Cyberball. And basically, Cyberball was this little game on a screen, the most boring game in the world, where them and two other people, they believed two other people, were throwing around a ball to each other. So it's just like a game of catch, basically. So they essentially were joined in this computer game where they were feeling like they were playing catch with two other people. Now, the people in the study didn't know this, but um, this was actually two computer programmed people that they were playing with. Okay. And what they did is they got these two other people to then, after about a couple of minutes, start excluding the person in the fMRI. So oh. basically they were playing ball and then at, at one point suddenly um, the other two computer program people started just throwing the ball between themselves. And that causes that social pain system to light up. So the point there is really it, it doesn't take much for us to experience <laughs> social pain. <laughs> social rejection mm. isn't nice. And it, it, as a social animal, that makes sense, right, from an evolutionary point of view, because whether you're a dog, a human, a horse, a cat, being rejected from your social group decreases your opportunities for survival. It's not it's not a good thing to be rejected by the social group. So you've got to we've got to be sensitive to it, like physical pain it presents a it's just something that identifies a risk to our survival and longevity so yeah, yeah social pain is very interesting we're headed into a really seriously damaging time for people i think because something that see i've experienced both sides where the customer was um, always right and now the customer doesn't even count like you cannot make contact with anybody in the company. Um, you know, they're handling your money and all this stuff. You cannot go in and talk to them. You can't get help. You can't get. And I myself find myself on these things with, like with, you know, their chat bots for customer service. And I find myself screaming expletives in certain limited occasions. Because, like, you need, this is something complex. And you're going to waste all my time to tell me what your hours are and how many locations you have and all this, rather than just letting me get to somebody that can help me solve this problem. And you're going to make me go through 20 different little walls where you go, is this, did I solve your problem by doing nothing? Or is it something else? something else and by the time you get to the 20th one and it goes oh let me get a real person for you you think you idiot you know you're like really there and first of all I'm trained not to do that and they just you get so angry and feel so alienated and this is the world that is getting left to people in your generation where you know, you kind of like don't count. Yeah, and it's really frustrating, isn't it? When when you're yeah. dealing with, I mean, I imagine you you might have seen the same thing. You know, we, operating a business where you're running on Facebook or Instagram or all those sorts of social media platforms that we all have to get into using. It's really annoying if if there's something that goes wrong with your page or goes wrong with your your they program. They just shut you my page get... down for the second time, and. Don't say what the problem was or anything else. And the last time, all of a sudden it was just up again. And they just say something cryptic. Somebody told us you did something wrong. 
And it's like, fortunately, you guys are redundant. I'm about to get rid of you anyway. But it's like, yeah. You, yeah, you can't just call up Facebook anymore <laughs> or no, ever, I don't think. No, and you can't get any answer. You know, they'll just, thank you for reporting on something that we don't really care about. You know, it's like, yeah. And until you were saying about social pain, and then I started to recognize that my major uh, place where I get social pain is from AI. Okay. In in what context? If you from the the, the existence AI is the uh, wall between me and the people providing the service. Mm-hmm. And so, like you're saying, in that game, the human didn't realize, but those were two computer people. So yeah, that they were just programmed to do this at his this other person's expense because they wanted to see what was the expense the researchers did. But you're trying to deal with Facebook. Why did my site get closed down? Like, how do you expect me to to do whatever you want me to do if I can't find out what it is? Like, I didn't do anything wrong. And so I can't fix that. And you're not saying what the supposed problem was. So it's just frustration. And you're at their mercy unless you figure out how to do an end run around it. But it's it's not just that it's, you know, all the people that collect the payments for everything, all the banks, all the, you know, uh, vendors. It's everybody now to if I find companies where they actually have call centers with live humans, I will switch things over to that company because I'm just so over it with the artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, it's it's frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, artificial intelligence is great when you have to review a bunch of records and find certain things. But to replace humans, A, I don't want to see it get there where they can do that. And B, um, like I'm getting all these requests to, oh, try our artificial intelligence to write your summaries of your videos or something like that and maybe the video is about saving toads and you said when you were a kid you liked toads and the ai summary is everybody likes toads and it's good to get out in nature you know it's like totally misses the point and it's like gosh is this really what we're going to be producing you know for other people to learn and read because over and over again, the AI, and I've tried it from a lot of different sources, doesn't do a good job of bringing the material together on a technical level. But if we all get to the point of accepting that, then that's the lowest common denominator. Did we get off touch again, off base again? Sorry. No, it's, it's interesting to think about, isn't it? I find um <laughs> end up talking about AI a lot at the moment. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, very relevant um, at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because, like, um, I know that we have the opportunity to use it also. Have you tried using it just 
Yeah, yeah, I've tried it out. Um, it's yeah, some stuff that can be quite good that it produces. Some stuff, as you say, like 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 um, your example there, can be terrible. Uh, <laughs> what have you found it really works for? Um, so um, for things like um, terms and conditions, <laughs> it can be quite oh, good for. Um, giving right. me ideas on that. Um, I've also yeah. found if I'm looking into a new topic and I want some of the broad research on a topic, it can be quite good. So, for example, if I say, you know, if I wanted to find out, oh, what does this region of the brain do? Have you got any studies on it? It can give me quite a good signpost to then going and doing my own research yeah. and finding out. Yeah, like going through and finding citations by a certain person or whatever. Good. Writing the scientific paper, not so good. No. Interesting. Well, we have been at this for a bit. In fact, unbeknownst to you, I extended our time just in case. But <laughs> what would be good is to, um, I've had a blast. And oh, <laughs> Me too. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. So let's, you want to do it again sometime? Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And we'll cover some more topics because we sure haven't gotten to the end of all of these mysteries and uh, rich places to explore. Thank you so much for um, coming to help us with this and to teach us. I literally have three and a half pages of notes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot to learn. Anyway, um, I really had a good time and I thank you for doing the work you're doing. It's important for us to keep pushing forward the knowledge, but it's also so important to bring other trainers and um, behaviorists and so on along. You're, you're doing a lot to make it more accessible for people. So thank you. And we'll do it again. Is there anything that you want to um, say before we sign off? No, I think that's it. Um, yeah, I hope, yeah, hope, hope it's been useful. And uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us. And please uh, send a link out to your friends so they can hear this great stuff. And please like and subscribe if you are interested. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.